Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have a slightly different format this week because I'm the guest. I'm being interviewed by Rory Jacobs from the Radical English Gentleman podcast, and I have to say it was a very personal interview, maybe slightly too personal. I'm a little bit worried about some of the things I said, and then it got very political as well. So we talk about everything from immigration to my childhood to Andrew Tate. So hopefully you'll enjoy the interview. Very revealing, and it was a lot of fun. And we'll be back to the normal format again soon, but I thought you might enjoy this, and it's a sort of cross-cast let me know what you think. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by the biggest guest I've ever had on the show. It is my absolute pleasure to be joined by Nick Dixon. You may have seen him on TV or one of the biggest podcasts in the UK, but here he is. Do you want to give a little introduction about who you are and what you're about? Yeah, thanks, mate. I don't know if I'm the biggest guest you've ever had. Didn't you have Lawrence Fox on here? No, no, I haven't actually. Oh, okay. Well, then I probably am. Um, yeah. I'm Nick Dixon. I'm on the telly on GB News on a show called The Headliners, 11 p.m. every night, and I sometimes host it, sometimes on the panel. I do the Weekly Skeptic podcast with Toby Young, which, as you say, is doing all right. We just had a million downloads, just had a sold-out live show. And I do another podcast, just to make my life really hard, called The Current Thing, uh, where we've had people like Lord Frost, Carl Benjamin, Andrew Doyle, Richard Tice. We've had Rory. We've had all sorts of people on. Yeah, brilliant podcast. You do a lot. It's quite incredible. You got like two big podcasts, TV show. Absolutely incredible. I haven't actually watched the recent Weekly Skeptic Live thing. I should watch that because it seemed pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it was a great show. I mean, it was so funny. I was listening back to it, honestly. And you know, I kind of, I, if, I often listen to things and hate myself because on the <laughs> night I just was like, oh, I'm not sure. But I listened back. I was like, this is really funny. I was like, this is hilarious. And it was mainly me being funny. And, and Toby was being very insightful. But I was like, this is actually really good. So you should all come to a Weekly Skeptic live show. It was in the central London, Leicester Square. And it went really well, man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's so impressive to have an audience where you can actually do that. Um, so yeah, I was thinking... Bring your the... ID, though. You've got to bring your ID. Because yeah. uh, you're like, how old are you now? Well, I'm 20. I'm actually 20 right now. So. <laughs> okay, because someone didn't get in because they didn't no. look 25, even though they totally did. And, uh, and then they did get in when they showed their driver's license, but like they were being very, very strict. God. So, you know, your audience needs to bring their ID. Yeah, blimey. God, that must have been so depressing for him. Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, so, so no, so... no, when you get older, you actually want to get ID. That's what happens. Yeah, want to be younger, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I've got such a baby face on camera. Everyone thinks, I mean, I do in person as well, but not quite. I'd say a little less in person, but I do look like a proper baby on camera. It's embarrassing. A little less in person, plus you're massive. So let's start with your childhood, because I want to know all about the Nick Dixon behind the screen, behind the camera. So do you, can you start with like your childhood about what, like your situation growing up, your school, your parents, everything, the f- full Monty? Wow. Okay. I can give you an overview. Yeah. I mean, I was in, I grew up in, a, in the lakes in Cumbria, tiny little northern village. Uh, sort of near Grasmere, went to school in Ambleside and Windermere. And uh, these are nice places that people think, oh, that must be so nice, Nick. That must be great. But they're thinking about visiting as an adult on a holiday. They're not thinking about growing up amongst just northern lads, going to the pub. And, you know, everyone in the school is a farmer's son. And it's, you know, it's it's tough. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, you know, people walking around the fells. We didn't do that. We drank. And we, you know, had a fight. Is that that's what that's what it was like? So people have a very different view of it if they just uh, visit. So that was that was where I grew up, and um, yeah, and I hated school. Uh, obviously, well, I'd say obviously, I don't know why, but I, I did absolutely hate it. 
though you know now i occasionally get a facebook message from people from my school and i always think oh i'd love to see them i never go back but it'd be great to connect with them because they're the people that really know me at the end of the day no matter how much i've changed and what i've done they're actually the people that really know me and as i get older i actually wish i could hang out more with my school friend even though i hated school uh, my parents you asked about my dad came from a very poor background didn't have a toilet all that kind of thing his dad my granddad uh, joined the army at 16 was in world war Two, and then drove a van afterwards then he worked in a post office but didn't have any money if they hit anything my dad once told me a story if they hit something in the van this was in rural Lincolnshire they would eat it if it was like something edible they'd like hit a pheasant or something I don't know what they were hitting and then they'd eat it I was like these people were poor <laughs> and my dad's mum my grandma was even poorer I went to her funeral listening to the poverty she grew up in it was just like unbelievable she had to drop out of school even though she was smart because one of her sisters got ill they were on the dole then they'd be on the parish, which was this church doll when the normal doll ran out. And I just remember thinking, this is unbelievable poverty. And that's why I get so pissed off about white privilege, even though I know it means something different, but it still really pisses me off. And that's my dad's side. And my mum's side uh, had slightly more money, but not loads. And they came from Lancashire. And they were in the cotton mills and things. And then, then my mum's parents had a little restaurant, which my mum and dad took over. And, and so I grew up in a little restaurant, weirdly. And so that is, is that most of it? That's, that's a lot. That's more than I ever tell anyone. Interest. What? what so no one what, interviews me. I just interview people. <laughs> so it's weird to be asked. I'm like, I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, no, but what, so like you obviously grew up in kind of a working class background, everything up north. How is, and now you're in the London bubble, you're going to parties, you're part of GB News, you've got your own little, well not little, massive podcast. How, how does that feel to actually be in that kind of network of people from different worlds? Well, I definitely say I was lower middle class. My dad was working class, but we were just sort of normal. You know, it was a state school, but we were definitely not working class. But we we were certainly, you know, I'd call it the lower middle anyway. But yeah, you realize it is the lower middle because as soon as you leave, you're like, oh, there's different levels of middle class. <laughs> and yeah, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm amongst all sorts of people now. Well, doing a podcast with Toby, I mean, he's pretty posh, isn't he? His dad was a lord and uh, all these people have been to Oxbridge and all this stuff. And a lot of posh shows at GB. There is a... There is a divide. Lots of good people there, but there is definitely a divide. You know, me and Andrew Doyle, who's the executive producer on Headliners, he went to state school. Our senior producer went to state school. And you do tend to end up hanging out with the state school people. And it is one of my fairly prejudiced beliefs that the posh people will never really see you as an equal. Some of them, you know, are fans of my podcast. So then maybe they do because I'm the guy doing the podcast and they're a fan. And maybe that can bring us on some sort of equal footing. But I've got this sort of... I've got this kind of chip on my shoulder about they'll never see us as equal. <laughs> but that could just be me being a dick. Maybe maybe they will. You know, everyone's been very nice. I haven't spoken to Jacob Rees-Mogg, but he seems very nice. Nigel Farage has been very nice. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Sound like a proper left winger there. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, oh, just resenting the... Yeah. Uh, resenting the, the yeah, oh. yeah. Maybe that's what I am, really. Just a just class, class war. Yeah. Bring on the class war. Old school left, like SDP or something. Um, what, so like during your childhood, what, what's been your best memory and worst memory? <laughs> wow. This is, this is deep. This is like therapy with Rory. Um, <laughs> do you ever ask anyone else this or do you just do news topics? News. I mean, I rare, always never do this. 103 episodes, never done it. Yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah, let's, well, let's get into it. Um, best and worst memory of my childhood, did you say? Mm. Okay, worst is definitely my friend dying. It's not close. When I, my friend died when I was eight, 
they completely changed everything and I never actually really recovered from that. And I'm not sure you ever really can. And it completely changes your worldview. And uh, that was by far the worst. Um, the, not to bring your podcast down, but the best, and the best I'm struggling with <laughs> a lot more. The best would just be going on holiday with my parents, I think. And like we used to go to Lanzarote. You know, Lanzarote is kind of a normal place people go on holiday. I think, I think those were the best memories. I think it was this just, you know, just the beach and stuff and just very simple things. Just the, those memories to me probably, probably would be the best. Not that I've given you much detail there, but that's, that's all I'm giving you. Interesting. So with, with like your friend who pa- like passed away, why was that? Was like an illness or? Yeah, he had a leukemia and they speculated it was from, I don't know if they ever found out for sure, or if you can find out for sure, but they said they speculated it was from the sort of rock pools from the fallout from Chernobyl and that and the radioactivity and the rock pools and the water and the all that kind of thing we had and that may be the case because my aunt also died of cancer and she she also believed it might have been you know based on rain i don't know the details but i do believe that was that was what they believed it was otherwise why does you know it does happen i suppose rarely but it seemed a strange thing i think that was what the family blamed but it was uh yeah yeah so that was bad yeah, sounds that sound horrific. What or the more like positive note, what was like the reason you got into comedy? And I'll just say one more thing about that. No one has grief counselling when you're when you grew up when I did. No one cared about feelings. There was nothing like that. It wasn't you know, it wasn't it was just get on with it. No one asked, no one there was no no one at school had gave you anything, there was no services. Your parents maybe ask you once, are you okay? Literally once. And my mom asked me once. Nothing against her. It's just a different time. No one helped you deal with that at all. You were just on your own. So imagine that. But anyway. And we'll go back into it a bit. Um, what, how has that like shaped how you've like lived your life, would you say? I think it has. I think it has increased things like my my neuroticism and, and health anxiety and things like that, if I'm honest, I think it probably had a, it's hard to tell how, how much you're shaped by an environment versus, you know, nature versus nurture, obviously an ancient debate, because I know lots of people who went through the same thing at my school, knew the same people, but they not bothered. They're just sort of happy, normal people. But for me, it, it's definitely, I, I don't know really if it's, I would have been like that anyway, but I'm, I think it's made me, more hyper aware of certain things and things that can go wrong and stuff like that and it give me probably a slightly darker worldview probably mm. or more neurotic at very least i don't know because then you start to think you know you just when things like that happen early on you just sort of feel like it's more i suppose it gives you a more vulnerable feeling in the world about things that can go wrong from an early age and then you have to build up all kinds of def- mental defenses against it and if they get them broken down then you you're kind of a mess so that's think what happened there i kind of yeah anyway when i get too down i'm not even going to therapy anymore this is good though this is free therapy yeah quality um so like how did you transition into wanting to like be a comedian and like go into that whole world because so you you were a comedian before you went on britain's got talent but you were like a small comedian right shay 
I haven't even mentioned I was on Britain's Got Talent. I forgot about that. Um, got all yeses, four yeses, but they still didn't put me through because it's rigged. The game is rigged. Um, yeah. Um, comedy. Well, do you know what? One of the most important moments, I could have given this as the answer to the best moment in my childhood, actually. When I was 10, I remember making the whole class and the teacher laugh with like an off-the-cuff quip that was a pretty high level. It was pretty sophisticated. When I think about it now, because I remember exactly what I said, it's still sophisticated. It was like high-level humor. Made the whole the teacher and the whole class laugh. It was like, bang. I just remember the feeling of it washing over me. And I, that's obviously stayed with me as a great moment because I was always funny. I was just born with it. I think it was just a talent. So... So I always had that. I was obsessed with sitcoms. And I was obsessed with making people laugh. It wasn't like class clown, but it was like wit more than clown. It was waiting for a pause when the teacher said something. Then you you jump in. And that was all I ever wanted to do at school. That was the whole point. And in the pub, anywhere, just making people laugh, just waiting for the gap. You bang with the joke. Or just getting on a rant and being hilarious. That was the same at school, university, everything. I was just obsessed with being funny. Just what, how I was. And I, even now I'm trying to be very, very serious and I'm trying to go and move against it. But this, this was always what I was into. So I never thought I could do comedy because I thought I couldn't go on stage. I just told myself I couldn't go on stage. It was a, one of those so-called limiting beliefs I just had in my head. Oh, like I, I, maybe I could do comedy, but I could never go on stage. And that was, the, that was the extent of it. Then one day, my life was going nowhere at all. I was doing nothing. I'd come back to London, but I had no job. I was completely unemployed, no prospects, depressed. And I went, I said, just do one. I was trying to find what to do in my life. And I came up with this thing of just doing one thing for myself that was like nice, because I never do anything for myself because I'm a, a man and a northern man. So of course we don't do that. And what I thought was I'll go to the tennis club. So I played tennis as a kid. Because my dad, even though he came from this poor background, was into tennis weirdly. He was just talented at it. So we all played tennis. So then I, I said, all right, I'll go to this tennis club. It was only like 150 quid for the whole year or something. I was like, all right. Which was a lot to me at the time, but I still went. And I met a guy there who said he was a comedian. And I never met anyone who was a comedian. And we didn't have comedy clubs where I was from. We just had fields and sheep. So I just found myself saying, oh, I think I could do that. Which surprised myself that I would even say that. I didn't, wasn't thinking about it. hadn't thought about it for ages. And didn't ever, not, not sure I ever really thought, despite what I just said, not sure I ever really thought I could do stand-up. I barely thought about it as a, as a serious option. I just said it to him. And then he said, like, well, you know, why do you think that and blah, blah, and whatever. And I, I, he told me how to get into it. And, and I ended up writing some jokes. I started just writing these one-liner jokes. And I showed him some of them. A couple of them he thought, oh, that's been done. And one of them he said, that's actually really good. And I'm like, right, if a professional comedian is saying it's really good and I've just come up with it, maybe it's actually is good. So then he, he told me how to start and just the open mics and how you get started and all that. And so I started and I was immediately, in hindsight, not good, but better than pretty much everyone else trying to do it. Or, or, or there'd be like two of us who were obviously good and the rest couldn't do it sort of thing. And the rest would be like mentally ill. And so you can see very quickly who had the talent. And then to end this fairly rambling story, I then, the key moment for me was one year in when I did the Comedy Store Gong Show it sounds silly that this was my best moment in comedy. It was 2012, and I went on st stage for the Comedy Store. Do you know what the Comedy Store gong is? No. Okay. You go on at the Comedy Store, 400 people in the audience, and it's in the, the Comedy Store and Piccadilly Circus, and, um, and you get three yellow cards from the audience if they don't like you. They, they get put up a card if you say something dumb or stupid or not funny, and they go, one card. And then they, <laughs> you get a look like two cards, <laughs> and then you get three cards, three cards, and then you get they hit a big gong and you have to get off the stage. It's absolutely brutal. I'd been to watch it once, and I thought immediately I could win this. 
but then I waited a few months till I knew I had the last minute because if you get through the main rounds, you get in the final and you have to do an extra minute. So I wanted to wait. So you could come on just by getting on from the audience. You could just say, I fancy that and get up or you could book it in. I almost got up like a few months earlier. I was like, no, no, I'll book it in. So I booked it in and I was on fourth. Dane Baptiste was on, if you know who that is. They were like people who became comedians. And he's been on the Apollo and stuff now and hosted live at the Apollo and things. Um, and he's a big lefty, so you know we're in different worlds. But <laughs> but um, he uh, he was on. He got to the final, but I won. It was an incredible thing. I got no cards. I absolutely destroyed the gig. I won. It was one day off a year since I started comedy. I won the thing. I got a crown. I got big agents wanting to represent me coming up to me on the night. Some of them emailed me, and I was just there with a crown. Smash this gig. Agents want to represent me going, this is how life should be all the time. Wow. <laughs> and that was the best it ever got in comedy. After that, it was all sort of, yeah, meh, you know, ups and downs. But that was the best, best it ever got. Carl, that is incredible how you went from s- super low, dep- would you say you were depressed before? Oh, yeah. Wow. I was super depressed. I mean, I was like dangerously depressed. Yeah. Blimey. And you went from that to just smashing it in a comedy club. How did you get the motivation to do that in the first place? Like what pushed you forward? Because obviously when you're at your lowest times in life, people say, oh, you should just do this, do that. But, you know, it's one thing to actually do it. Like if you're properly depressed, how do you find that spark, find that key to actually like open the door? Yeah, it was a couple of things I could, I could answer that and to try and be helpful for people. One of them was a friend recommended this therapist. So I did go to a therapist. And my whole goal was just to find what I wanted to do with my life because I had no direction. And that, and actually, when I found comedy, I stopped even going because that's all I needed. But uh-huh. um, So it was one thing, it was just doing that. And the second thing was that thing of going to the tennis club and do, trying to just do one positive, nice thing or good thing for myself because I was just so depressed. You know, I was like, I couldn't afford much food. I was just like, I had nothing. I was unemployed. And so I was just, everything was just misery and, and like, you, or you can't that, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. You, you can't afford that. But I just said, just do this one thing. And at the time I felt incredible guilt, even going to the tennis club. I felt it was like so wow. extravagant. Who, the, who do you think you are? You're unemployed. How can you go to a tennis club? You know? So it was just like, it was the two things. It was going to the therapist to look for what I, I don't know how I afforded that either. This was, I was like, literally had to think carefully about buying a sandwich like a, a wrap that was like <laughs> three fifty or something. I would like I would like not buy things because they were expensive, like food. Somehow I must have had the money. Must to I must have got enough money to go to this therapist and to do this tennis thing. So it was to, yeah. It was it was just taking basic steps to find what you want to do and just to do something positive. That that's for yourself. That's all it was. And to like young people growing up who might be in that position now, or anyone who just feels like rock bottom like what is what is the point of going like you know keeping going i have no one who cares about me or like i can't see a future that i want or this happened that happened what's your like message to them and like right now in this my, my message would be that it can it can just get so much better if you just start with a simple step like i did and then you can end up you know on tv i mean i, I worked on a movie with will smith i've done comedy on tv i'm a tv presenter it's ridiculous I've got a million downloads on my podcast. People, 160 people came to see me the other night, and we did 250 the previous time. We could have done more. They paid 100 something quid just to have a meal with me. It's it's, it's absurd. But I was, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's, not saying it's not good value, but what I'm saying is, given where I've come from, so you can 
you know, not that I'm the biggest person or that successful because there's way people way more successful than me, but given where I started, it's, it's almost unbelievable. So I would say to them, just, just take a basic steps to start moving in the right direction. And you, then you can do incredible things. You can't really get lower than, than I was. I mean, I used to sign on in biker in Newcastle at one point with no idea what I was going to do in my life. Like that's a rough part of Newcastle. I was on the dole. Like I've been unemployed nowhere. Parents who were smart, but not able to really help me out because they haven't got connections. I didn't have connections. I didn't have a posh school. There was no one giving me a job. No one was telling me how to, what to do. There was nothing. I had to figure it out myself. And so I just say, you have, to, you have to have something inside you, of course, that like drives you on. But I think pretty much everyone has that. You might think you don't at some points, but just do, just, if you just can make one step to do something, something positive, it can, you know, it can go a lot further after that. Wow. And if you were like from what you've learned now about life and stuff what's one thing you'd say to the 17 year old nick dixon 17 why'd you pick 17 because you're about 17 no well, i'm 20 but <laughs> <laughs> but like i mean it's quite a crucial age because just above 16 but not 18 yeah yeah 17 year old okay well one thing i would say is you know life gets better after school so don't worry about that um i'd say that actually not to well i'd say to myself not if it, if if it's helping general people i might say something different to myself i would have said not to think i'm just some like pathetic loser or something who's just awful because actually that was just that wasn't the case as soon as i left you know i had it was lots of people liked me and things i had lots of qualities but at school i couldn't see it because it was just all like you know people telling you your shit and nothing so i would have just <laughs> said that you're actually all right and not and not so bad and you know and i might have said skip university as well which is a waste of time as you know but i'm not sure if i would have or not because you never know how that would have affected things but something like that interesting um so talking of like kind of like advice and stuff so you're someone who supports andrew tate <laughs> we'll get into it um so like and you know andrew tate personally well, would you say personally well, yeah, friend. well, I've met him. He follows me on Twitter, and we've had some DMs, so that's where, yeah. where it is. Wow. And, like, why why do you like Andrew Tate? I like Tate because he gives a positive message for men. He He's anti-feminist. He's anti-woke. He's uh, funny and brash, and I find it amusing. And I like that kind of humor. It's maybe not my sort of humor, but I like people who, who do that kind of extreme humor. I've watched his stuff for years, since before he was you know, notorious before we were all told we couldn't like him. And I always found it very funny and entertaining and interesting, which obviously loads of people do because he's massive now. Because I watched it for years, it never worried me when people said, oh, he's a human trafficker, because I knew he wasn't, right? It's like if I had known you for years and then someone said, oh, Roy's a human trafficker, I'd be like, I don't think he is. I think I know him pretty well. <laughs> but if you just the first time I'd met you, they said, this is Rory, he's a human trafficker. I'd go, oh, okay, because that's what most people's relationship with Tate was. Then the first time they heard about him was the mainstream media. But if you've been watching him for years and formed your own opinion, it's much harder to shake that opinion. So I knew that it was all nonsense, all that stuff. I still believe, I don't know if I'm, I'm allowed to say I knew it. I don't know if I could, in GBL, I'm in danger of getting in legal trouble. But my belief is it's all rubbish. And so, and that's my strong belief. So I wouldn't, wouldn't back him otherwise. And so I already just liked him. Now, this doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. I get these messages, how can you agree with Tate? How can you say you like Tate when he just said this? Well, because I don't agree with him on everything and I'm not in control of what he says. I just broadly enjoyed his message for a lot, you know, for several years. 
doesn't mean I then condone everything he's ever said or done, or or he would do the same with me. It's completely immature, banal way of thinking. Uh, but I broadly like, I broadly think he's a positive uh, impact on the world. Actually, and I should have, I should, I didn't know you were ask me this, or I would have gone to my notes from that debate <laughs> I did. I did a debate on this where I was the only one there going, Tate's amazing. And, uh, but I've forgotten all my points from it. But my, my point is basically he's broadly, broadly a net positive on the culture despite all the uh, haters. Interesting. So, like, I mean, would you say that you said he's definitely not a human trafficker? I mean, based on the evidence, can you say that when he had a website of step by step tutorials of how to traffic women? I don't think he had any such thing. The, the trafficking claim <clears throat> isn't even about that site or his webcam sites is about something to do with TikTok. So, you know, people, people, people sort of put it all together. Uh, as, as I understand it, the, the trafficking claims relate to something to do with TikTok and the, the webcam business he had is not actually part of the, the legal case, but people conflate it because he had a webcam business and he had those courses, which you might be referring to a kind of online courses about running a webcam business or getting women or something but none of them said how to human traffic people you should be careful saying that because that is live right, yeah all right, right, right yeah good point <laughs> supposedly <laughs> human trafficking you're just you're just i think you're just wrong about the facts i think a lot of people are conflating a lot of facts not that i'm like tate's lawyer but i yeah. think you want to get it right yeah all right fair enough about the facts well from a different angle so you would you're a christian uh, like you don't identify as a christian right well, I say I try and be a Christian. I don't know if some Christians think I'm not. That's they can say that. <laughs> I believe in God and you know Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, wh- why not? So like, how do you grapple with the fact that w- the way Andrew Tate lives and indulges his life is like completely goes against like the Christian moral framework in so many levels of him, and even now, like being individualistic, he has multiple wives, multiple kids, multiple women. He got rich for an OnlyFans business. He indulges in like mon- like mundane, vapid things. Um, like, how do you grapple with the fact that he's the epitome of not a Christian, but he also uses religion to manipulate kind of people into liking him almost? Well, the last thing I don't think he is true. <laughs> but um, well, he he converted to Islam, so of course I don't agree with that being a Christian. Although it's probably better than being an atheist. Um, yeah, he's not he's not an ideal Christian, but I don't it, it, I don't perhaps because I'm less judgmental, maybe because I'm there's a lot of judgmental young men coming through, and it's going to be a different culture. It's quite interesting. I'm less strict and puritanical than that. I'm just you know it would never occur to me to because being an imperfect person myself, it wouldn't occur to me to judge someone from a Christian perspective and say and condemn them completely because they're imperfect. I might disagree with things or not like things. Would I condemn people? I might condemn people if they were really, if I really thought they were bad, of course, on the left or something, I would probably, maybe I would do that. So let me think about it. I just, the reasons I've already said, I think Tate is a net positive and I think he's an imperfect general, as I may have said before, like, like Churchill was not perfect. Everyone's saying, oh, Churchill was this and that. How can you like Churchill? Well, he won us the war and he got it done. I see Tate in a similar way. These kind of figures are never going to be paragons of, of virtue they're never going to be perfect morally and and tick every box it's just not how they are they're going to be they're sort of you know they're warriors they're sort of battering rams that they're, they're they're attacking the things that need to be attacked in the culture they're not going to be perfect christians necessarily or perfect anything 
you know, much as Churchill was, or anyone you want to cite, you might say that's an absurd comparison, but it's just one that sprung to mind. But but you speak about, like, wokeness a lot and woke culture and stuff, but Andrew Tate is the epitome of wokeness in the sense of individualism, the sexualization of society, um, like, and doing anything for money, um, like, like the, his philosophy is wokeism, but you, you posture as being against wokeism, but he's, and there's so many other people who have a more traditional battering ram against culture like Jordan Peterson, who is wildly, wildly successful, but is also traditional. But Andrew Tate is wildly successful, but also the epitome of modern wokeism in the, you know, the sexualization, the individualism, <clears throat> the vapid consumerism, like that within itself is, I'd say, modern day wokeism. Um, yeah, I, I disagree that it's wokeism. I did have... Will Noland on my podcast, who claimed that Tate was a feminist, it was quite interesting. He said he was trapped in the feminist paradigm, and I found that pretty interesting. But he didn't say he was, I don't think he said he was woke, but he said he was trapped in the paradigm of promiscuity, which was uh, promulgated by feminism. So I, that was quite interesting. I like Jordan Peterson as well. I don't think we need to, we do too much of this now. There's this purity police. Some people call it the woke right, but they're all saying, oh, you can't let this person. I've just seen it on Twitter, ex formerly Twitter, because Zuby had a picture with Piers Morgan and did an interview with Piers Morgan. I was like, how could you be anywhere near that man? I just thought it was kind of pathetic. It's like, of course you're going to do an interview with Piers Morgan. He's got a massive show and you don't have to, I mean, Piers Morgan's blocked me. I think he's an idiot mainly, but I would still do his show and I'd just, I'd, and I'd get to have a go at him and give my opinion. Why is Zuby in a picture with Piers Morgan a problem? It's absurd. So Jordan Peterson is good and he's bad in some ways. And you know, he went to a Russian hospital and took a load of weird drugs. And, uh, and so that's not great. But in other ways, he's good. And Andrew Tate is, you know, some said things I disagree with, and mainly on um, Israel. But in other ways, he's good. Um, and I don't worry about everyone having to be perfect. And oh, they've done one thing wrong now. They're not allowed in the in the gang. We don't have to like them anymore. And there was one other aspect to what you said. What was it? I can't remember. What about tradition? How uh, he's not traditional? No, it wasn't that. It was something. As this was three points, but I forgot to make Mo a note. Like multiple but, um, wives. Yeah, there was multiple wives. It was, I don't really believe he's woke. I don't really sure where you're getting that from. You're saying it's individualism. And there is a debate, is yeah. woke in vapid, ram rampant individualism yeah. or is it collectivism? Well, vapid consumerism, he indulges in all of the aspects of like liberalism with our society. Like he can't, he can't focus on one woman. He, he can't only have sex with one woman. He's focused on instant gratification. And the only aspects he's actually traditional in is massive individualism within working out and looking good. But then that for the purpose of the individual and not the collective within itself is kind of almost wokeism. So that when you actually look at Andrew Tate, I mean, what is traditional about Andrew Tate really? Like, well, he does value hard work. He preaches hard work and it's not just for himself because lots of young men are inspired by it. And it's, who are they going to listen to? They're not going to listen to some uncool person. They might listen to Jordan Peterson a bit, but he's a kind of a slightly dorky as well. They might not listen to me. They might, they might, some of them do, but they'll they'll definitely listen to Tate because he he's cool for young men. So you want Tate to be this perfect Christian going to Sunday school, but that's not <laughs> the kind of person that young men would latch onto. They're going to like the cars and all this. So what he does is he sells a brash message with the cars and all this kind of thing, and then he has has some wisdom in the back door, which is work hard, which is be stoical, which is depression isn't real, don't give in to it, which is a message young people need to hear because people give in to their. I say this as someone who's had all these. Things. If, if depression is real, I've had it, anxiety, all of them, 
my cousin uh, killed himself at 17. I don't take these things lightly at all. But you, you can't give, give in to them. You do, if, if you automatically, from the, if you immediately from the start say, oh, I'm depressed and, oh, guys, I just want you all to know I'm so depressed, and it sort of defines you, that's already a terrible start. So Tate says, work hard, be stoical, don't define yourself by mental health problems. You don't, it's more important what your actions than how you feel that day, which is an important message for men. Don't be a victim of your, the whims of your feelings. Do your duty. Provide for your family. Even when he was in prison, he was worried about providing for oh. his family and his mom and so on. Yeah. These are all good things. And he's on a journey himself. He used, to, he used to say it in a more brash and aggressive way. Now he says it in a slightly different way. He used to be an atheist. Now he believes in God, even if it's Allah. You know, he is on a journey himself. But you're being very unforgiving and like, oh, he does all these... He, he, I, it's because he preaches one thing. Why is he condemning for his past... But it's huh? it's like it's like me coming out saying for, for people to be traditional and then living like Tate and then <clears throat> talking about like uh, like one thing he always he says about the Western values is like oh the de- the degeneracy of the West and it's like he is living the literal epitome of what he says but it doesn't but but his view is degeneracy doesn't apply for men and he's the epitome of, and he always degrades Western culture of like oh look at Saudi Arabia or whatever no one will insult this religion or he'll say that and it's like he like he's just the epitome of someone who isn't like the only examples of traditionism is hard work providing for the family but even that he has multiple wives and that's not traditional at all i wouldn't say um you know all it is is hard work and stoicism like that's the only two things that you know you say are traditional when there's so many other people who are saying those things who also do hard work stoicism like i but I wouldn't say just taking those few things mean he's traditional because he's not. He's he like he's a degenerate. Like he lives the epitome of a de- the degenerate West he describes. You know, vapid consumerism. Sec- he sexualizes women constantly. He thinks that sleeping around is like okay for men but bad for women. Like, but a true traditional would would apply the same principles for both. Have one woman. Have one man. Um, like I I just grapple with what is traditional about andrew tate at all <clears throat> i don't particularly care personally if he's traditional or not I, I i care if he is a net positive or if i enjoy his content basically and so i don't particularly care if he's traditional or not you could argue he obviously the multiple wives thing is traditional in islam not in not in so much in christianity so yeah um it comes down to we're not going to agree ever and <laughs> partly it's loyalty because when I like someone and when I back them and when I have some, you know, interaction with them and know them a bit, whatever it is, I decide to back them. So I'm not going to turn on them. Just like I wouldn't turn on you if someone came along and said, Roy is actually awful, you know, <laughs> and people don't really have loyalty anymore. So, you know, I'm not just fickle and I'm just going to turn against them because, because people tell me I should. So I'm never going to. And the more you say it, of course, the, the, the more I'm going to dig in. So it's completely pointless. But if, if you want to, as, as a debate, it's you know maybe reasonably interesting for people. But I'll never change my. And as the DMs I get, I, I've said exactly what you say. And how can you like taking it? And of course, I'll just dig in more I'll, because I'm not going to change my. Because someone is writing me an annoying DM. Often people who've got big problems themselves have done worse things than Tate, and they message me, how, how can you like Tate? And it's just uh, I don't care about that at all. I'll make my own mind up. There are some things I radically disagree with him. Obviously, when he says. Islam should take over the West or when he seems to be unable to condemn Hamas and things like that, obviously. And if I had an interview with him, I'd try and ask some tough questions and, you know, point out some of these things. But your problems with him are maybe slightly different to my problems with him. My problems is probably on the recent, 
you know, Israel conflict more than some of the stuff you're saying, which doesn't bother me. And I've always understood that he's funny as well and that he's he's being hyperbolic. You know, if you have any kind of sophistication, you can tell that he's joking. He went on the Tom Segura show. Tom Segura used to mock him, this big comedian with a big podcast. He used to mock him all the time and mock, let play his clips and the rubbish leftist comedians on his show would try and mock him. Then they eventually had Tate on and he was funnier than all the comedians and he was hilarious. And actually, if you watch, there's an old documentary they did on him back when he was just knocking around Luton. He didn't have the same fame and, you know, all the cars and stuff. He had some cars. And he was just knocking around Luton and drinking and stuff. And this guy made a documentary and it's absolutely hilarious. And their humour, him and Tristan, is so funny and so dark. You know, they're, talk- they're in them. At one point, they're visiting the- where Fritzl was and they're saying, say what you want. You know, he knew how to keep his women in the hole and stuff like that. It's like just insane dark humour that if sort of Frankie Ball or someone in his heyday said it, would you be like, oh, that's very funny? With Tate, you're like, oh, he's not allowed to be funny because he's not a comedian. A lot of it is dark humour. A lot of it is humour that makes sense to me. Being from a comprehensive school in the North, that's how we spoke. Now we're all supposed to pretend to be outraged by, oh, how dare you say that? But that's how men speak to each other on WhatsApp or in school or in the pub, and that's just how it is. And he just says it in front of everyone. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. He is a like hilarious guy. I'll give him that. He's really funny, Tate is. Um him and Tristan do like they are really funny but I I I just think you look at and I rate what you say about loyalty and no one has loyalty anymore I think that is a good point but when I look at what he's doing to men and making men think I, I look at that and I'm like positives what hard work stoicism which you see from multiple people Rogan Peterson whoever and then you look at the negatives I mean degeneracy he wants, <clears throat> like, he bangs on about Sharia law being a good thing or whatever, like, how great Islam is and how we need to be, a, like, authoritarian theocracy preaching Islam or, like, multiple wives or, like, I mean, I think he's a sexist. I don't think it's right that a man can sit with multiple people and a woman can't. I think it's the same either way. So, um, like, women, sh- there should be cultural ramification for a woman and a man. I, I don't think it's just should be one or the other. Um, but speaking of, like, religion and stuff, I know you're a Christian. What? What does Christianity mean to you? Good question. I mean, all kinds of Christians can say I'm not a proper Christian if they want, because uh, I like Tate or whatever you think. <laughs> but um, to me, Christianity is just, well, it's believing in God, it's believing in Jesus, it's believing in the resurrection. And that's really the key. And that's the key part. Other than that, it's up for debate, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've got a series on my podcast the current thing with with the reverend dr jamie franklin going through the bible and we're reading through genesis in order it's taken a while we're up to page eight we've done um one on genesis and one on cain and abel one on noah and we're about eight nine pages in now so we've got a long way to go to get through the bible when you start to read the bible it's very mysterious and strange and there's lots of things like why is that in there who are the nephilim what are they doing there why is their presence on earth such a problem and why does god decide to flood the whole world and just because of the net, it seems to be because of the Nephilim, who are these fallen angels or angels that have bred with men. It's not quite clear, or are they giants? It's not quite clear, but there's this part called increased corruption on earth. And God says the only intention of man is to do evil continually. I'm paraphrasing slightly. And he says, right, man's just evil. I'm flooding everything. I've had enough. And you go, oh, interesting. Why did you decide to do that then? And, you know, so many stories you think you know, but you don't. So there's just Christianity is an endless mystery, really, when you get into it. The basics are atheism. Maybe I'm just some idiot who hasn't, who's just saying something obvious or stupid because I'm 
not read any, enough books. I've read some books, but um, I think atheism is just an offshoot of Christianity anyway. Now I've started to think it's just a just like a like a Quakerism or something. It's like a sect of Christianity because where does it come from? It, the developed post-Christian West, where they say, okay, we want all the ethics, we're just going to get rid of the supernatural aspect because we're a bit icky about it. You don't see atheism coming out of like, obviously not the Islamic world, and you don't see it in like Nigeria where there's loads of Christians and so on in the developing world. You might have some pygmies in the rainforest or something who are atheists, but they're probably, even then, they probably have some sort of God or something pertaining to nature. So atheism, as we know it, it's just a sort of, decadent spin-off of christianity that wants to retain not even decadent necessarily but it wants to retain the morality without the belief part and i just think i've started to see it's just part of christianity anyway maybe that's crazy or stupid but um anyway i've got more to say about christianity but it, i don't know i've spoke for a long time there so i'll let you chip in <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting hearing you like when you speak about christianity you're on the defense right from the off have you got pushback about being a christian or because like, i i ask you are you like what's christianity to you and instantly you're defending like almost against people saying you're not a real christian like what what's that about it's partly because you just attacked me about tate for about 10 <laughs> minutes and um and last time we did a podcast you immediately launched into an attack about my rhetoric yeah about tate. it's kind of like absurd so i'm yeah. always on the defensive with you because i think you're because you're so you're one of these young people who's very hard line and they think everyone's not living up to some puritanical standards. So I'm already on the defense of that. But in general, I think I just am because maybe I, I, I question if I, if I am a true Christian because maybe I think I'm not living up to it as well. So that would be the other reason. Interesting. But I don't know what living up to it means necessarily, but I just would say, if I say I am, does, are they then going to go, well, do you go, how often do you go to church or blah, 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 whatever. They go. And you just get that kind of thing all the mm. time. Yeah. Or I do. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I might come across as a very judgy Christian, but I'm not at all. Like, I hate church, absolutely despise church. Um, and, like, I, I also believe that no one can say you're not a religion. So it pisses me off when people say, you know, when people say ISIS members aren't Muslim or the KKK aren't Christian. It's like, if someone says they're a Christian or a Muslim, you do, like, it's not for you to say they're not, ever. I don't care. Like, if Tate says he's Christian, he's Christian. I might think he's a shit christian and like he's using christianity to push an agenda now he's moved to islam because he's misogynistic but the um like I, I i think you can never ever say if someone's religion or not um and that's also i think one of the reasons people don't become christian is because this is almost like oh well what are you doing well what about this what about that um but I, like i mean what what's kind of the co- three core tenets for you of christianity in the way it affects you your thinking of life or how you live life or anything okay that's a good question um the one big one uh, obvious one is is the the example of of jesus because if you think the world's against you and you're being cancelled and all these kind of things you always have the example of Jesus because it's so extreme it's the best possible person suffering the worst possible treatment and the most unjust possible treatment and then at the and the most painful and the, the worst possible and then also forgiving the people so it's it's the most extraordinary example nothing you'll go through will be as bad as Jesus being crucified and the multiple indignities and pain that was piled on top of it and you'll never be anywhere near as good as Jesus. So the 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 injustice it was is the maximum injustice, 
then at the end he also he still says forgive them for they know not what they do so that is the extraordinary example if you can forgive the worst possible thing done to the best possible person you know that's that's what my take anyway so there's always that example if you think you're having a a bad day or a bad (laughs) year um two more would be difficult the other well two is the resurrection where that's pretty key and i've asked christians who are kind of nice people and they're christians what do you think about the resurrection oh i don't know really or yeah i suppose it happened like they haven't really thought about it which is kind of strange to me because that's like everything really that's the whole key part and i might have said it before but i had this dream about it where it wasn't about the resurrection specifically but it was about i saw a this giant cross in the sky it was actually against i think what a bible basically it was like an old book with a, a cross in it and um and I was driving down the road and the, the idea was I, the feeling was I had to keep driving towards it. But the other feeling I had in the dream was that God and Jesus was like, were looking at me and they could see everything, but also that they were definitely real. And how would that be if they were definitely real? Because it's very different to think they probably are, or you, you believe it some days or whatever it is. But in the dream, I felt totally that they definitely were. And it kind of changed everything so radically. Maybe this is what I mean by not living up to being a Christian, but because if you really felt it the way I did in that dream, it was like it changed everything and to really know it was true. That was crazy, but hard to attain that every day. So so that's why it's important to decide if the resurrection is true. Uh, then three, three, well, I can tell you what springs to mind, but it's not really part of Christianity it's just it's just my observation which is I was waiting around to have this revelation I might have said that I've definitely said this elsewhere but I was waiting to have some sort of revelation which I didn't have that dream only came later once I decided to believe again and I think you can decide to believe and as soon as I had that insight I realized that it's always been that way really in fact that that people just sort of say oh yeah it must be nice but I'm not religious or something and I say what does that mean because in the past, it was kind of understood that we upheld God. We didn't. He didn't show up and say, "Oh, here I am," and then it, then it'd be easy. The work could be done for us, right? All societies that have believed in God have individually and collectively decided to and gone to church, which you hate. But they've you know <laughs> they've done. They've decided to. It's better to believe in God. So I, I suddenly realized. So I was listening to Peterson, and he was saying. He was talking a lot about the Christian ethics, and I was thinking, "Yeah, this is all great." It'd be great if we could have the actual belief part, because I don't believe you can just have a you know, Jungian analysis or whatever. Like the, you can't have the Jungian archetypes, and it's all very well, but who can follow that really? You end up following Petersonism, which is okay. It's certainly been an influential movement. If you look at art, it's a kind of cult of Peterson. Actually, Christianity. The positive is he sold it to so many people, young people, and people who would have been soured on Christianity. And the, the negative is it's not actual Christianity. It's, it's just Peterson's cult. So. <laughs> I was listening to him and I thought, wouldn't it be great if, as well as having the archetypes and the, the, the moral, the substrates and all this kind of stuff, if we could also have the belief part. Then I said, well, then just believe in it because that is, that is, it's up to you to do that. It's, that's why it's called faith. It's not, you know, it just doesn't just show up. So those are three things that, that, um, that spring to mind. Wow. I mean, that's a great point about Peterson and people like following the values, the virtue, but <clears throat> not believing and I think that's also a good point about life in general. Like you can always ponder about everything. You can always have doubt about everything. You have to chuck yourself in the deep end and decide 
and then navigate from that place you can't just sit on the fence and ponder like even with your views like if you're like oh well maybe this isn't true maybe this is true about i don't know the vaccine or whatever you, like you can always go back and forth on everything you have to chuck yourself in the deep end and just almost defend it and see how your brain expands and grow and see what you really think of something because you'll find more when you defend something than if you just say you believe it yeah yeah but now i'm on a new phase of christianity where reading the bible with with jamie on my podcast wow. and then it's new again then then i ask new questions again i'm like well this is weird some of this stuff in the old testament how do i feel about this and then you you know you have more questions but yeah yeah i yeah i definitely should read more of the bible because I've, I've read it a lot last year when i worked for Fiji, <laughs> and i've i haven't read it since really but yeah i should definitely so you're not going it. to church not reading the bible so what kind of christian yeah. are you i mean you i don't d- even like andrew tate yeah <laughs> no but i, I those, those are the main things go to church read the bible and like andrew tate those yeah yeah classic things. yeah um i mean i don't um i did do a recent course have you done an alpha course no all right you should do it okay no, dr james Orr mentioned that to me on uh, recently but um yeah, you've done all that stuff you've been on a retreat and everything haven't you yeah so. yeah yeah that's why i mean i'm not a proper christian like you i'm you're like on a shaved head with a cross on a weird retreat <laughs> You're in some sort of hardcore. You're like a, a monk or something. Nah, I mean it's not. It's not hardcore. It's a bunch of young. I mean, there were atheists there. You know, it wasn't like a crazy. Oh really? Yeah, loads of atheists there. Yeah. What was the idea of the retreat then? Well, it was. It was like it's like love and kindness and like Christianity church, but it's so amazing that atheists go or like all sorts of people go. Um, wow. Taze in <laughs> Okay. You should go. You should go. I said that to you last time, actually, I think. I told you, yeah, it's really, really good. You, what, were you there for a week or something? <laughs> yeah, I went for for a week. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And I met um, Love My Life as well, <laughs> which is great. Extra extra bonus. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. You, you should work for these guys. You're selling, the, you're selling it. So you went for a week. <laughs> what you do, you just you just pray a lot and meet girls. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much, pretty much. You um, don't go to church. You don't read the Bible. But you're in a Christian retreat. What's going on? Um, well, atheist. Yeah, so I went there and it was... I mean, it's just... So you wake up, you camp in, wake up, you go to, ch- like, hit, like, morning church. And then... But it's, like, different type of church. And then Bible studies and then, like, eating and then communal lunch, washing up and stuff. And then, like, Bible... Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. Definitely check out anyone who's listening. Called Taze. Changed my life when I went there at the weekend. How's it spelled? Uh, T-A-I-Z-E. It's absolutely incredible. It will change your life if you go there. It will change your life. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so what, like, for your life, Eddie, what's your, what's, like, your top three biggest aspirations in your life? Because you've got, you know, your TV presenting, you've got two thriving podcasts. What's, what's the future hold for Nick Dixon? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, the first one is this new business I'm launching with Toby, which is going to hopefully be a platform. We're not naming it, although some people seem to know the name already. But we we, ha- we have a name, but we're not releasing it yet. But it's going to be a platform that's going to have multiple podcasts and shows and things like this and all sorts of content. It's going to have Weekly Skeptic and the current thing, but then hopefully others as well. And we're talking to various people about that. So that is a big thing. We're just going to take over all of alternative media in the UK. <laughs> Keep it small, uh, yeah. We might, yeah, we're just going to crush Constantine, which I just say as a joke, <laughs> but uh, I've started saying that. But uh, crush those guys, not crush GB because they're my um, day job, but um, 
that is a big thing. So that's, that is my making that work as an aspiration. Maybe it'll just be a little thing. We'll have a paywall. I mean, that's all it was meant to start as really, but, or maybe it'll take over all, all media. Let's see. That's the main one that springs to mind. Two others, personal or professional? Both. Okay. Um, personal, all right. Okay. I'm so focused on the business. That's the main <laughs> one that springs to mind. And I'm reluctant to admit any personal ones to you. Really? What about um, love, love, what about love? Yeah, I suppose it would be good to not always live on my own. Like, Well, I don't mind living on my own, but I suppose it would be good to not to be complete loner. My relationships have not gone that well. <laughs> um, I've been out with some, my last girlfriend was stunningly beautiful, but it didn't work out. And the other ones have not worked out. Why haven't they worked and out? Uh, I've not really worked out how to be comfortable with so- having someone there the whole time. I'm just like a bit of a loner, I think. I'm just kind of, I don't want to say that because people will be like, oh, Nick's an incel or something, because of course I'm not, because I've been out with these hot chicks. So, you know, <laughs> ridiculous. But I just kind of am a weirdo. So I'm just kind of a bit too used to being on my own. And I don't know, relationships have caused me a lot of anxiety, and they haven't. I suppose they have been they have been the happiest moments but then also lots of the worst moments i guess that's part of the deal i've not worked it out i've not managed to be like a normal person i, I envy these normal people who just they have their two or three kids and their wives and they just seem really normal they've got normal jobs and i'm just not like them like partly i envy them and obviously partly i have contempt for them it's a mixture but um and there are lots of them in my football team and stuff and i was thinking how do these guys do it there's obviously something different about me i'm on some other sort of journey and I've not been happy with myself, I suppose. So I haven't been able to settle because I've not been settled with myself. I'm always trying to grow and move on and and and, and expand and stuff. So, you know, like I did comedy and I, you know, I went to university, moved on from that. I was working in a shop. So I moved on from that, did comedy, moved on from that to whatever the heck I'm doing now. I always try and move on and sort of massive on self-improvement and growth is my sort of thing. But um, so look, what is my aspiration in it? Crikey. I don't know. Definitely the business to try and crack some of my neuroses about relationships. Let's say that's kind of a very minor way of putting it, but um, that would be good. And what else? Um, one more. I think I get so focused on things. I don't. I don't even know if I have three. one more. Is to make my new house m- much nicer than my old one, which just I just had nothing. My ex girlfriend said I live like a communist monk. I didn't have anything <laughs> in the house, and like. I didn't think about furniture and stuff. And now I'm actually thinking about it, like, oh, maybe I'll actually try and make this place actually good and have some actual furniture. I've never thought about that before. So those are, that's an aspiration for you. Wow. I mean, I mean yeah. Only def- one of those was clear. The other, well, actually, no, two <laughs> of them were clear. One of them was, was kind of all over the place because I was just not comfortable being grilled on it in public. Yeah, no, I get you because obviously people see this and it's such a um, private part of your life. Would would you say like generally speaking you and you said about self improvement and like that constant growth mindset, would you say you suffer with like just being content and like just being present and content with something? Yeah. I yeah, I, I do struggle with that and I'm basically never happy. I think I was happy for a day when I moved into this flat and really liked <laughs> it and had an amazing view. Oh. And then I started to find problems with it. But um yeah, basically yes, I mean I can never be present. Yeah, exactly. And I'm always worrying about things down the line. And I have this conscientiousness. 
you know, Peterson talks about it, hiring conscientiousness. And that's supposed to be a good thing for being successful, IQ combined with conscientiousness. I should have done better, really, given I've got both of those, but made my IQ is not as high as I think. But um, <laughs> the thing about it is it makes you able to predict problems. And I'm always saying on the TV show and on the podcast, this is going to happen if we don't fix this. And, I can th- and I'm always right. And I can always see the problems that are going to occur. And other people are just going through life not thinking about anything. It's crazy. But um, it does make it very hard to be present or be content. The other thing is not just conscientiousness. It's um, I have a strange need to always move on and grow for some reason. And I think that's pretty normal. That's probably what life's about, right? But maybe I do it in a... Sometimes I express it in a strange way where I have to sort of hate what I was doing before. So I'm like, why are these people still there? They've not even moved on. They're just, what's wrong with them? Losers. And then I have to move on from comedy and prove that I can do that to myself. And, you know, it, I don't need to, it perhaps doesn't have to always be in such a weird, aggressive way where I always have to hate what I've done before to move on. But I just seem to have this thing where I want to, and if someone thinks I can't do something, I want to move into that area. And, you know what I mean? I never thought I could do, I never thought I was going to be doing TV presenting either or anything like that. I was a, thing but I would always like to and now business is the new one I've never done business who knows if I can do it so now I'm like right I'm going to prove I can do business to myself or to whoever mm. but it obviously yeah, it does mean I'm unhappy the whole time yeah <laughs> that's so <laughs> sad to hear Nick oh I think yeah no I think a lot of people do struggle with growth with someone like it's a scary thing because then they're seeing the process of growth like that's terrifying um and it's cause well, yeah, how can you stay yeah. with someone when you when you want to grow and constantly have, and I just have massive ambition and if they stay the same, or even if maybe they grow in a different direction, how can that ever work? Well, because they grow with you, and then, but if you're the core things of values and faith, like, <clears throat> how could they not grow with, with you? I guess it's about self-control with, because then I think a lot of men kind of connotate success with, like, I don't know, multiple girls or, like, hooking up with loads of people. So, and if you connotate those together, then it's it's impossible. But if you have the view of you grow with the person and you share the success with them then it becomes a lot easier and then also explores they see a different you which might be terrifying but then it's like they truly know you type thing um well but you're putting it in in that yeah in that context obviously if you suddenly went out with loads of girls and the the girl wanted monogamy that wouldn't work but what if you you know like me were doing comedy but then you moved into more political area and they went oh i don't like right-wing politics so then that would be over and there was a, mm. a, a kid the other day was saying to me that he got divorced he got he last time he i'd seen him was a few months it was like early in the year and he was just getting married now he's already divorced and he got <laughs> within the year no. because she cheated on him oh and it also she didn't like hopefully I'm, it's okay so i'm not saying any names he she also didn't like the kinds of things he was doing now because he's kind of in our sphere you know where it's edgy and we're sort of politically outliers and outcasts so so she didn't like that so what, what happens if you grow in that direction you say hang on I, I don't like the way the world's going i i don't agree with these things i'm not going to be let's say you're you're with some woke person and then you become red pill that's not going to work is it well a lot of people had this during covid massively different beliefs about the vaccine or lockdowns and those marriages struggled or failed right so sometimes growth how can the two people stay together yeah, but I would say with that, I mean, that's the scariest thing about love. That's why it is a leap. Like, you can't control it. So there's always the risk that someone can leave and it'll ruin you way more. But if you want the true extent of the high, you have to be able to risk the absolute lows with it. Or And if you try and control those two, you'll never experience the high because then, yeah. Well, you're very wise, Rory. I mean, you're wiser than me, even though you're... you're we'll go out of... <laughs> 
I'm glad you're sorting it out and I'm glad you've um you found that yourself and you're smashing it. Appreciate and hopefully you can do that. I mean, I, I you know, hopefully you can you can do that. And you're already a Christian. You've already got a nice girl. Hopefully you can go on that straight path. I know people who are Christians who are with the girl they were went to school with or were at school with, you know, and I think that's amazing. The same girl the whole lives. And they're just amazing. Those people are great. It'd be great if we could all be like that. I'm not like that. I'm dark and weird. But if, if you can do it, <laughs> I applaud you. Well, you can still do that, Nick. And I appreciate the, um, the uh, Rory appreciation there. <laughs> um, what with with like um you and what you think of the UK and where it's heading, obviously you're reading the news, you've got your podcast, you're talking about issues. What would you say is kind of the top issues or issue facing the UK, you know, socially, culturally, economically, whatever? Okay, let me answer. How long have we done, by the way? I don't have a counter oh, on my thing. We've done an hour, what... so we'll do like a few more minutes. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. <clears throat> All right, Um. so... Sorry about that. The question was, I'm just, I'm used to being a control freak. From no, my no, own it's, podcast. Fine. it's fine. It's fine. The, the question was, where, what do I think about where the UK is going? Well, the worst problem the UK is facing, like economically or socially? Or... <sighs> okay. Well, I'm reluctant to say it, but I think the worst problem the UK is facing probably is immigration. And I don't really want to be that guy. I didn't used to be. And I used to think it was quite sort of weird people banging on about immigration and even Farage with his binoculars <laughs> looking at the small boats during lockdowns like he's got his binoculars out again looking for the dinghies and that can seem quite silly when you're when you're not aware of the facts or when you haven't really thought about it but I think I never used to talk about it but now you look at it you look at the numbers you can look at it statistically and the 1.2 million and the, what was it 745,000 net immigration and then it went down to 600 and something but we had these huge huge numbers that's not even the illegal that's the legal and you just look i mean look, i mean next door to my new place there's a building in a language i don't recognize i don't know what the building does i don't know what the people because it's a completely different language i'm sure they're good people we go about our business but that's not really a country to just be completely separate right next to you is a thing you don't know what even the language is i could hazard a guess but i don't know and and we're not speaking to each other and we're right next door and I'm walking past that going, oh, it's like I've moved to whatever this country is. So it's just at a certain point. I do think that yeah, immigration is just, and multiculturalism is, a, is well, there's this phrase, multiculturalism has failed, right? And you can pick holes in the phrase as some people have because multiculturalism means a lack of integration. It means cultures remaining autonomous within a country. So when Suella Brabham said it's failed, technically she's wrong because it doesn't mean integration or assimilation anyway. It means cultures remaining autonomous within a country, right? So when Hugo Rickin said, well, I don't even know what she means, it's failed because that's what it is. And then there was the other people who misunderstood it on grounds of they just thought it meant assimilation. So Rishi Sunak said, well, I don't think it's failed. We, we're doing brilliantly, you know, we've got, in, we've got all this. He meant integration and assimilation. Multiculturalism is where cultures exist in, in one country, but they don't integrate at all. So a better way of phrasing it is multiculturalism has destroyed the country rather than it's failed or multiculturalism is bad or, or something like that. So anyway, I kind of think that's where we are. And it, if you don't see it, you don't see it. But if you do, it's very hard to escape. And of course, you're immediately called racist and by the people who tend to be Remainer type people like I know in North London. And they, they think the country's failing for different reasons. They think it's because of Brexit and they think it's because of that's it and so and they might even make a point well you don't want immigration we had immigration from europe now we just have immigration from other countries that are perhaps less suited to england and there is a case for that 
But um, yeah, I'm, I'm almost reluctant to go into it loads because we we could say so much about it. But I do think it's probably the, the biggest. I think, and you know what, people have it as the third biggest problem if they're when they're polled. The other problems are cost of living. I can't remember what the other one is, but it must be pretty big. If it's up there, it must be what, inflation, but that's part of cost of living. Maybe so I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah, maybe that. But and so I might put it. Well, yeah, it depends. If you were really struggling with the cost of living, you put that one, then you put immigration. Those are the, the top ones. But there's loads of ones we could cite because the whole country is an absolute disaster. But I think that probably ultimately has to be the main one because it's about what your country is. And if it, if it changes so radically and so massively, then it's just, just it's a different country, isn't it? So what, what do you think should happen now then if you think that's the biggest issue? Deport everyone. <laughs> really? <laughs> deport, deport just everyone. You, everyone, just I just get rid of all of us. No, um, I don't know. That's just a comedy answer. I just wrote a tweet, deport virtually everyone just for a laugh. Like, it's <laughs> the comedy part of me coming out. Uh, what would I do now? I would just have, it may be too late. I would just have much stricter, much stricter controls on immigration. But then I'd absolutely, obviously stop the small boats we need to do, the illegal immigration. That's, that's an obvious one. Everyone pretty much agrees with it, except real nutters. Then just massively limit immigration uh legal immigration because then you've got you've got the people who, who leave who, who every year re-migrate every year and leave so a few hundred thousand leave so what did um what does uh richard tice say net zero immigration yeah. that was quite clever <clears throat> if you you know three hundred thousand let's say will leave might be more then you let that amount in and then you're at the same level i think that's yeah you could do something like that mm. Well, I mean, I know we could go to the, we could talk about like immigration and stuff. For the ages. Tories are talking about that. They're saying getting it down to three hundred thousand. Right? James Cle- James Cleverley's just promised that they totally won't do it. But if they did, that would be approaching net zero migration. That would be three hundred thousand would leave, three hundred thousand would come in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it is a rising issue, multiculturalism. And in all fairness, last time we spoke, my like even though I'm still not not like you, my views have definitely changed and. I, I do say that unfortunately you did actually change my views quite a bit. Um, even from that little podcast we did, like of how my views have developed and like hearing your experience and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, you were super libertarian about just bring everyone in as long as we don't have a welfare state. Was that your position? Yeah, I mean it still is, it still is, but I also I appreciate the ramifications a lot more. Like I, you know, I've seen there's a clear difference in culture. Like people coming from. Saudi Arabia or certain countries like there's different value sets of like people can't deny it you know like I know that there's certain things I can't say on my podcast simply because of other cultures won't accept like for my own safety I can't say things about certain things where because there's a cultural difference because they certain cultures can't accept and aren't tolerant I mean that I think that is a truth really yeah, and I gave maybe some trivial examples, but that is a much better example. I mean, we believe in free speech, we believe in civil liberties and so on. Other people come in, they don't believe in free speech, they believe in, we'll kill you if you do X and Y. That's never going to, you can't resolve those two. Those two can't exist together. One just has to win. And then, as we've seen with the Hamas protest, or the, the Palestine protest, let's say, where some people are supporting Hamas, some people are just supporting Palestine, to be fair, and the anti-Semitism, that's a massive example that's woken people up because... No one cares about white people and white men and so on, but people still care about Jewish people. So when, rightly, so when they are suddenly under threat and, you know, 
hiding or can't go to school that day or don't want to wear anything that would identify them as Jewish or something. This is incredibly, this is horrendous. And this is not what England's about and Britain's about. But this, this is what's happened from importing every problem in the world. And even if you say, even if you're ambivalent or you say, I understand Palestine's position and Israel's position, but I don't like the Israeli government or something like that. Even if you have some sort of moderate position, you still have to concede that we've imported an unnecessary problem from a completely different part of the world that is now playing out on our streets in a fairly violent way. So why would we want to do that? That's madness. So you go, and it is interesting because lots of people I know, Jewish people and left-wing people and stuff are now going, hang on, I was lefty on, on the immigration, but now that there's this open hatred of Jewish people. And what I just heard today was a sitcom. It's not being, going to be shown on a British Airways flight because it's about Jewish people, and if it offends anyone who's over, like, Israel-Palestine, because it's, like, about Jewish experience. I'm like, what? You're censoring Jewish sitcoms now. And there was the... What was that Mumsnet article the other day that was shared? Oh, yeah, the, the kids were being asked about... Um, it says, like, some were killed on October 7th. It was really weirdly flippant phrasing. And then it said, but do you think Hamas uh, had a fair point or something like that, or what they did was fair? And kids were being asked this as a question in school. This is the kind of question we now have to ask in school. We wouldn't have had to ask that before. We assume that we don't support Hamas who want to destroy the West and, you know, eradicate all Jewish people. But now we have to go, oh, well, maybe they've got a point, guys. This is, uh, this is where we are. So you sound like, you know, the, the knee-jerk thing is, oh, you're racist. But the actual reality turns out to be, no, I don't, maybe you don't want Jewish people to be afraid of going out, you know. And so then it gets mm. a lot more complicated. And <clears throat> Yeah, I... I, I mean, I agree with what, some of what you're saying there. I would disagree, like, for instance, I mean, the IDF, for instance, has killed, like, what, 15 times the amount of people in that one... I mean, I, you know, I'm not someone who's anti-Israel, but, like, the IDF have committed absolute atrocities. They they have a worse... I saw a stat recently. They have a worse killing rate of s- civilians than Hamas in the terrorist attack on October 7th. And I'm not saying, I'm not, and I know it would trigger pe- people to hear that, and I'm not a defender of Hamas at all. It's a vile organisation, should be condemned completely. But <clears throat> it's also true that the Israeli government have committed atrocities as well. Like, I think, like, the anti Semitism and everything's horrendous, but I mean, the Israeli government have butchered thousands, and people say, oh, well, they're human shields. But when you have a like even in moderate ter- terms from the idf of like 70 percent civilian kill rate i mean when if you're killing that many civilians when you do things like you think to adjust or something you know human rights groups across the board i yeah i i'm not saying it's justifiable any anti-semitism or anything but it's i don't think it's as black as white as like you know palace hamas is terrible israel's good i think israel also doing you know fair amount of bad as well well, I personally don't don't think they're comparable. One 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 being a government, and who might have civilian. We can go over that, but civilian casualties in a war versus someone, a group that deliberately causes civilian casualties. We can go into all that, but I'm not an expert either. But the thing is, that's that's a different debate. The the, the issue is, we now have loads of people in the country who who hate the country, who hate Jewish people. For example, that, what's that Hamas guy doing in Barnet who had a discount on his house and he's living in Barnet and he's part of Hamas and he's just there in Barnet and just be an open, high, fairly high-level member of them, as I understand it, and we give him subsidies. I mean, this is completely insane. So you can say, you know, Israel does this and that, and that's a perfectly reasonable discussion about a, a, a foreign conflict, ultimately. I might disagree with you, but it, that's a, 
that's a discussion. We could talk about Ukraine versus Russia and did did we expand into NATO and so on. But the separate point is, but we have now people in the country who their whole ideology is they hate the West, hate the country and hate Jewish people and, and white people, but Jewish people is highlighted at the moment. So why on earth would we want that? As Douglas Murray said, why would we want that, that person, to, what they bring <clears throat> into the country? It's madness. Yeah, I, I agree with that. However, I mean, the issue there is like people like Douglas Murray now all of a sudden these free speech warriors are coming out saying we should like ban Hamas stuff. And it's like, hang on a second. You were like, what, what happened to free speech? I mean, I'm a free speech absolutist. So if there's a white nationalist organization, if there's an ISIS, you know, no, I don't care who you are, what your opinion is. I'll defend your right to speak. But I think on the right, there is a bit of hypocrisy going on right now where it's like, Oh wait, hang on there. Hamas, right? No, no, you can't do that. When actually I think they should have the right. To, if someone supports Hamas, they should have the right to support them. I'm not saying it's good. I'll condemn them, and there should be counter protests. But they ha they should have the legal right. Same if there's a racist who wants to express racist views, they should have the right. I think that we need to flesh out all these ideas. It can't be like, oh, well, this idea is okay, but if you're a Hamas supporter, that's not allowed. <clears throat> yeah, you, you do. You do enter some paradoxical areas, whereby you end up having to, to protect free speech you have to protect your culture part of which is free speech but then you might have to ban certain things it's, it's a paradox it's, it's like the fact you have to enforce free speech on campus now they have like these watchdogs who say we're going to have to enforce free speech on campus otherwise universities will just run amok with this wokeism so that's a kind of <laughs> strange paradox but with hamas you know do we actually have to you of course you have people who say they're pro-palestine and have a palestine flag in the country but should you have People are going around with the flag of a prescribed terrorist organization. Well, it, it, it's very complicated. It's about the limits of liberalism, isn't it? it ultimately, you, you can't have a country at a certain point if you say anyone can come in and do anything and, and openly advocate destroying the country. So it, it is a really complicated issue. I don't know if we're going to resolve it tonight, but I think I might be slightly less libertarian than you on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we have um, different views on like free speech and stuff. I'm more extreme. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Nick, and I hope that people listening have seen a different side of you behind the, behind the screen, behind the interviewer, and <clears throat> and keep up the great work for everything, and check out the Weekly Skeptic, current thing, and headliners, was it Monday to Thursday, 10 o'clock, is it? It's actually every night at 11 o'clock on GB News. I'm not always on it, but it is on every night. I'm on it loads of nights, probably about three a week. Yeah, and uh, definitely check out the Weekly Skeptic and the current thing. I thought I was on my own podcast. I was about to plug my buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. That's probably more for people yeah, who already probably, like my content. Yeah. Mm. It's nickdixon.substack.com as well, which is my substack if you want to get my articles. But probably if they're new to me, they want to go to... Although I actually am going to release this on my own podcast as a crosscast. So I will say to my people, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon to keep the lights on. And uh, yeah, thanks, Rory. Oh, and go to... and what. And, Go to the radical English gentleman. Is that what it's still yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Haven't changed it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, the only thing is the name. The name sounds just far, far more right wing than you are, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just the God. wrong name. You call it something like Zuma Views or something. Like you should play that <laughs> Zuma card. <clears throat> no. We'll think no. of a title for you. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got it yet. Just but yeah, because I'm saying to people on my one, go to the radical English gentleman, and on Roy's one, go to the current thing and the weekly skeptic. I appreciate that. And any last words to people out there who are feeling demotivated what the hell like any any um because you know a lot of people feel down a lot of the time trudging to work or whatever what's one one last message to those people yeah well 
People have said this to me a lot lately because, and they said this to me at my live show, they said, well, the country's in such a mess. I go around in this malaise because everything's going downhill. And there is that problem that the country feels like it's declining and the West feels like it's declining. So then what do you do? But even within that, if you, you know, you can't solve all the problems of the, the country. But, even, but if in your own life, if you could take steps, you know, to do the obvious things like go to the gym or work hard, do your work, start your podcast or put out your podcast if you already have a podcast or do whatever the thing is, you will always feel better. There's still everything you can do. You, you might feel like you have no agency because we're in this collapsing West, but you know, you're not going to solve the collapsing West, but you can still, like Jordan Peterson says, clean your bloody room. You can still <laughs> do those things. You can still do the basics, right? Like work hard, go to the gym, try and eat reasonably well, which I sometimes fail at. Be nice to people if you can. I get angry sometimes. I, I'm sometimes a dick. But if you, uh, you know, treat other people well, you'll feel better. You can still do all those things, right? And then, and then things will hopefully gradually improve. And they will improve, I think. I, I think we are going to win. That's my other positive message. People keep saying to me, Nick, why do you suddenly think we're going to beat woke? But I suddenly think we are going to beat the woke thing, by the way. I've just seen a lot of signs recently. Look at this Aviva thing, as we record, where they, they said, oh, straight white men have to get a special pass from the, the CEO woman to be allowed and we, we want diverse people. Everyone's hated that. Um, things keep happening where people just push back. This thing in the universities in America where they fail to condemn people calling for the genocide of Jews and people went, no, no, what are you doing? That's disgusting. So I've noticed a pushback that's happening. We are going to beat this work thing. It's going to collapse. There are lots of other problems, but I think we, I think ultimately we win, we win in the long term. Well, I read that lovely finishing off and thanks to everyone's listening much appreciate share of a friend or family member someone who wants to well not wants to needs to hear these conversations outside the echo chamber outside bbc news you know real conversations <laughs> or anyone who just likes nick dixon definitely share with them and it's been there's a pleasure. few out there yeah <laughs> despite some of the terrible <clears throat> things i said throughout this yeah yeah i'm sure loads of people love it um because there, there is something for everyone i think in this episode like all sorts of people which is good um, it yeah. goes from self-help to far-right yeah. opinions. Yeah, <laughs> self-help to far-right bigotry. <laughs> joking, joking. Um, <laughs> we do it all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Appreciate it so much. Love you all. And I'll see you next Thursday at 6 o'clock. It's a bye from me. Bye from me. Peace.